This morning we are privileged to hear God's word today from Pastor John Piper. Many of you are familiar with uh, Pastor John's writing and his ministry. For those of you who perhaps are um, unaware, John was the uh, pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota for over 30 years. He's the author of over 50 books, and I'm sure many of you have read what he has written. Very influential in terms of shaping the landscape of evangelical Christianity in our uh, country and really, for that matter, around the world. John has an ability to speak to my heart, as I'm sure he does yours, with clarity, precision, and theological depth. And what I love about John's ministry is both the depth of content, the clarity of his writing, but there's one other piece that I've experienced personally. John is a pastor. He's a pastor at heart. And in 2004, when our daughter was stillborn, John, um, through some circumstances, ended up sending me an email just encouraging me to keep pressing on, gave me a line that I've used over and over, you've heard it many times, which is, keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. And then about six months later, met with Sarah and myself as I was wrestling with, how do you preach week after week when your heart is absolutely breaking? And to be able to see the connection with his help to take challenging realities of suffering and what God was teaching me there and just pull that into every week with sermon preparation. It was a life-giving moment for my family and uh, for our future ministry. So it's a great privilege today to have Dr. Piper here to bring God's word. Would you give a warm welcome to Dr. John Piper as he comes. It's hard not to love your pastor, so don't try. <laughs> and I have an affection for you, because I suppose I've, I've been back, I think I've been here four times in one capacity or the other, and uh, I have I've loved connecting with you in the Word of God, uh, people that love the Word, absorb the Word. You can tell when you're looking at people and speaking hard or sweet truth. You can tell. Do they love this? <laughs> and uh, there are hard places to speak where you don't know or you can tell they don't. And then there's College Park. So thank you for being an absorbent people who draw out the best. So let's let him come and speak. If you have a Bible or want to turn on your device, let's go to John 5, Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament, chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 31 to 47, then we'll pray and ask for God's help. Maybe a little heads up to what to look for. It's a longer text. We're going to be focusing on uh, the place of the Old Testament in the mind of Jesus. How did he think about it? What was the relationship between God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament and Jesus' arrival in the New Testament? We're going to draw in some really big contemporary issues about Islam, Judaism, and whether we worship the same God. 
That's what this text relates to. And I'm sure there'll be other things that the Lord always does more than we plan. That's the way his word is. So follow me, please, if you have a Bible, in verses 31 to 47 of John 5. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. This is Jesus talking. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that his testimony, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the works, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice, now this, this, these next several sentences must have infuriated his listeners because these were the people who knew their Old Testament better than anybody. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. <clears throat> I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe? who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses like you say you do? If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. He wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Lord, these are simply devastating words spoken to the most religious, Bible-saturated people in the world. 
And there are many religious people in the world today. The secularists who predicted that the world would become less religious in the 20th and 21st century have had their mouths shut. This world is religious through and through. And oh, how diverse are the religions. So God help us now. We want to navigate the pluralistic, relativistic age in which we live with biblical faithfulness and great self-sacrificing love. This text is a help. Help us to see it. Help us to feel it. Help us to be sobered and made nervous, trembling by it, and then bold. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's point out a few things as we look at the text. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So he's saying all of the scriptures, meaning Old Testament scriptures. New Testament's not written yet. So first two-thirds of your Bible, that's what he's talking about. They bear witness about me. That's the first thing to notice. Then look at verse 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. You'd believe me. But you're not. And so you don't believe Moses. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. So the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, Jesus says, he wrote about me. So you have verse 39 saying, the whole Old Testament testifies about me, and the first five books by Moses are written about me. Now, he draws out in verse 38 and 42 some of the devastating implications of this. Verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. How does he know that? For you don't believe the one whom he sent. So you can't have read it and have it dwelling in you because it's about me. And you're stiff-arming me. You're not having me. You're going to crucify me. <clears throat> so Jesus infers the fact that you're opposing me means that word isn't in you because that word is about me. Then look at verse 42. He draws it out again, even more devastating. But I know that you do not have the love of God in you. How do you know that? I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. So you can't be loving him 
otherwise you'd love me. Because the whole book of the revelation of God is about me. So those are the kinds of things we want to see and meditate on together in this message. So let's go back to verse 39 for a moment and focus on the word witness. The scriptures witness about Jesus. So ponder the meaning of the word witness and how how does the book do that? What is a witness? Let John you, you know what a witness is and what a witness does in a courtroom, but let John, I'll give you four verses, let John define it. Chapter 1, verse 34, John the Baptist says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Or John three eleven, we speak, Jesus says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. John chapter 3, verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. John 19, 35. He who saw it has borne witness. Okay, so it's pretty clear in in the way John is using the word witness or testify what he means. A witness can testify to what happened because he saw it happen, right? You, you don't bring a witness ordinarily anyway into the courtroom to make an argument, but to just say, Did you see it? What happened? And he testifies, and you can discredit him if you try, maybe, but that's what he does. His job is to say, I saw it, here's what happened. Now, this, this verse 39 says that the Scriptures bear witness. They testify about me. Well, the Scriptures, that's odd. The scriptures don't have eyes. The scriptures didn't see it. The scriptures weren't there. What what do you mean, the scriptures? And, of course, you know what it means. The word scriptures is shorthand, right, for God who sees testifies in scripture. it's, It's shorthand when it says the scriptures testify about me. It means God who inspired the scriptures and saw me forever in heaven, foresaw me in the future, and everything that I would do from from incarnation to forever, he's speaking in the Old Testament and testifying about me. He saw it. This is not a problem. God sees. Now, what we want to dig into a little bit is how does the Old Testament do that? And I want to wave a little flag because for me, growing up, I would have quickly answered that question well, with clear prophetic promises and predictions, like he's going to be born at Bethlehem, things like that, which is absolutely true. But what we're going to see is that this whole, he says the scriptures, the whole sweep of scriptures is doing this testifying to Jesus. 
It's not like, here's a piece that testifies, here's a big piece that doesn't, and here's a piece that testifies. It's, that's not the way Jesus is thinking here. So I, I'm going to argue that uh, God says things and does things all throughout the scope of the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is a, is a record of the actions of God in the world in thousands of different ways. And everywhere God is acting and everywhere God is talking in the Old Testament, Jesus is acting. Jesus is talking. Or to say it perhaps more carefully at this point, God is acting and talking in such a way that if you really understood what he was doing and what he was saying, when Jesus comes, you would know perfect harmony. I recognize you, Jesus. I've known you. I've read my book. When you arrive, <laughs> yes! And that didn't happen for them. So that's what Jesus is getting at when he says the whole Old Testament testifies. And if you got the testimony, if you saw this God, if you heard this God and it, it abides in you, which it didn't in them, if it were abiding in you, that whole scope of Old Testament revelation of God, if it were abiding in you when he shows up, yes, you are my God. Now, this carries incredibly controversial implications in our day. It can get you killed. It did get people killed for 300 years at the beginning. It, and it can get you killed today, get you fired, get you called all kinds of names. But before we look at, at those contemporary implications, let me just walk with you so you can feel from John's gospel, how extensive, how permeating his gospel is with this Old Testament testimony to Jesus. So just, I'm just going to, I'll look at too many of these for you to follow along with me, but I'll cite the verse and point you to what I mean. There's about, I think, eight of these. So, John chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus drives out the money changers in the temple. And John, interpreting this, quotes Psalm 69.9, which, by the way, little parenthesis here, is an imprecatory psalm. It's one of those psalms that damn people, wishes evil on people. The kind of he's like, mm. One of the things that keeps me from doing what I had professors in Germany do, they just say, das ist doch ein Pharisäer-Psalm. <laughs> That's a Pharisee psalm. <laughs> Scratch it. What keeps me from doing that is Jesus quotes them. They're his Bible. He loves them. So I take a deep breath. I say, okay. This is a revelation of Jesus. So he quotes Psalm 69, verse 9. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
So even the cleansing of the temple was written in the Old Testament. Secondly, John 6, Jesus reminded the Jews that their fathers had eaten manna in the wilderness, the bread that came down. And he says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the manna in the Old Testament was pointing to what's coming down from heaven ultimately to feed the world. Third, John 6, 44, Jesus teaches, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And then he explains, this is about being taught by the Father in such a way that you come. And then he quotes Isaiah 54, 13, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so the point is, the prophets are describing how people get drawn to Jesus. That the Father moves into an unbelieving heart and opens it to, to the teaching of the Son so that they're drawn irresistibly and freely and happily to Jesus. John 7, 38, number four. Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to living water. And to do it, he says this. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So even that beautiful statement, out of your heart is going to flow rivers of living water, he says, as the scripture said. Maybe referring to Isaiah 58, 11, you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Jesus was absolutely saturated with the Old Testament. Prick him and he bleeds Bible, namely Old Testament. John, number five, John seven forty-two. The enemies of Jesus draw attention to the fact that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's right, Micah 5, 2. And they didn't think that he was going to be born there, but he was, in fact, born there. Chapter 10, verse 35. This is probably the most... Uh, be the word. Full of implication text about the authority of the Old Testament in the mind of Jesus. John 10, 35 refers to a detail in Psalm 82, 6, and then he says, the scripture cannot be broken. One of the strongest claims to the infallibility, unbreakability of the scriptures, including the Old Testament in all of the Bible which isn't at all out of character because he said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, heaven and earth will not pass away, not an iota, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass. 
from the law until it is accomplished. So down to the details, Jesus believes it's all coming to pass according to God's intention in Scripture. This seventh example of how pervasive the Old Testament is in John's Gospel is the one that carries the greatest weight in this sermon for me. It comes from John 12, um, especially verse 41. Um, There has been a, a reference to the glory of God being seen in Isaiah 6. So John 12, 37 to 41. John quotes Isaiah 6. And you, you know we sang it, right? In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. The temple was full of smoke. Around him flew the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face. And with two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And each cried to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the chapter that Jesus refers to here. And he quotes verse 10. And then... John, in verse 41, says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, namely Jesus' glory and spoke of him. There's not a word about Jesus in Isaiah 6, except all of it. Isaiah is witnessing to the glory of Jesus. Now, I think the implications of that, if you let that settle in and say, okay, there isn't any statement here that he's talking about Jesus. Anybody reading this would say he's talking about God, pure and simple. So, what do you mean? That he saw the glory of Jesus when he said the whole earth is full of his glory. My conclusion is this. Wherever the Old Testament is revealing God, it is revealing Jesus. Wherever the Old Testament is quoting God, it's quoting Jesus. Which means that when Jesus said the scriptures testify... It doesn't mean this part does, and that part does, and that part does. It means everywhere there has been a revelation of how God acts, who God is, what God says, Jesus is being revealed. So that if you want to know Jesus, you must know this God. Because that's the way you'll be ready to recognize Jesus when he comes. The whole God, the whole story. Not little pieces of it, including the imprecatory psalms. If you meet God, know God, admire God, 
trust God and are shaped by God as he truly reveals himself and his ways in the Old Testament, then when Jesus comes, you will know him. That's my main point. You will have already known him. He will have shaped your mind and heart so that when he comes, there'll be no discord, there'll be no dissonance, there'll be no contradiction, and you certainly won't crucify him. Um, Before I turn to those implications for our day, just one more thing we need to do together. Uh, That was, uh, what did I give you, seven, I think seven instances of how the Old Testament permeates John's gospel. If you start at verse 13 and go to the end, which is the, the last events of Jesus' life, John really ramps up the allusions to the Old Testament. Let me just tick them off for you, some of them. John 13, 18, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is Judas, and he's quoting Psalm 41. John 15, 25, they hated me without a cause. That's a quote from Psalm 35. John 17, 12, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, Psalm 109. John 19, 24, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, John 19, 24, quoting Psalm 22. John 19, 28, Jesus said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. When I think of that one, it just absolutely staggers me. He's, he's very close to death. He's been hanging in torture for hours. And to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. There, the scriptures are done. How thoroughly saturated with the Bible can you be? to talk like that in the moment of exquisite pain and death this far away and loving your Old Testament so deeply. It's what you cry in perfect fulfillment of all God's purposes written down. Makes me want to love my Bible. Makes me want to love the Old Testament the way Jesus loved the Old Testament. I hope that's the effect it has on you. I hope you never, never, never say, well, I can't make any sense out of this part of my Bible. I like this part. (laughs) That's your problem. (laughs) That's not the problem with the book. Jesus lived by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. I live to the end, to the very end, by the word of God. It's a call to you as a church to love all of your Bible, like Jesus loved the first two-thirds of your Bible, because that's all he had. He was the one who was going to make sure there was a last third. 
Not one of his bones will be broken, John 19.36, quoting Psalm 34. Another scripture says, they will look on him whom they've pierced, John 19.37. As they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, and on and on. So this gospel, from beginning to end, especially at the end, is saturated with the testimony to Jesus in the Old Testament Scripture. So you have direct quotes from the Old Testament. You have indirect allusions. You have specific fulfillments. You have statements like chapter 12 that says he saw his glory, which means every time his glory is revealed, that's Jesus' glory being revealed. You get the, you get the sense that there's no page where you're not going to learn something about Jesus in this Old Testament book. And now, and now we come to these, these implications that I talked about that are just so huge for Indianapolis and, and for America and for the Middle East and for Islam and for the Far East and for your workplace where you have a Jewish friend and for the refugees from Syria that you may work with who are all of them Muslim. We live in a world today where unlike 200 years ago, Everything everywhere in the world is available. All the diversities of religion, all the diversities of culture and ethnicity, all the conflicts and pain and horrors are as close as your phone or your computer. That's a new day and how increasingly difficult it is to be a Christian who believes Jesus is the only way to know the Father. It's always been difficult, otherwise they wouldn't have been killed in the first three centuries. But today, it's pervasive. Relativism and pluralism have put the diversity at your workplace, in your neighborhood, and you right now, as I'm finishing, are going to be faced with what you've already been faced with. Will I believe this? And will I be willing to say it and take a stand for the uniqueness of Jesus over against other religions? So I'm going to ask you three questions that Jesus basically asked and, and you can either hear them for yourself or you can pretend like you're a Muslim and hearing them, or a Jewish friend, and by Jewish I mean somebody who's in the, in the stream of the tradition that does not receive Jesus as the Messiah. There are Jewish people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and then there's the mass of Judaism who still have a veil lying over their face, and they, they don't accept him as their Messiah. What shall we make of that? Do they worship God. Do Muslims worship God? Hindus, Buddhists, Zoroastrians, spiritualists, New Age gurus, secular people who have their gods. Okay, here are my three questions, one at a time. Do you know God? Do you know God? And I'm looking at John 8, 19 in this particular case. 
because Jesus' adversaries, of course, claimed to know God. They were Jewish people. They knew their Old Testament. It's their book. And they said to Jesus, where is your father? Now that's probably a low blow. Meaning, we know that your mother was pregnant before she was married. And we don't even know who your father was. You're a bastard. Jesus didn't get sidetracked on that slur. He shifted the categories around and said, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So the fact that these adversaries did not know who he was, son of God, fulfillment of Isaiah 53, ready to bear the sins of the world, suffer, die, rise again. They didn't know that. And Jesus inferred from their not knowing that, you don't know God. Are you willing to say that to someone who doesn't embrace Jesus? The most religious person you know, perhaps. Pray three times a day, five times a day. Second question, do you honor God? So first question, do you know God? Second question, do you honor God? And now I'm at chapter 5, verse 23. These three texts you might want to mark because they are decisive in the point I'm making. John 5, 23. Jesus says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the Father revealed in the Old Testament everywhere and the Son that has shown up in history are so unified and of such a peace, I and the Father are one, that if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father, period. And you may say you do, and you may be willing to lay down your life or blow yourself up along with 80 other people. You believe so much in God, and you don't honor him if you don't honor Jesus. Period. Jesus is the litmus paper for the authenticity of knowing and honoring God. Number three, do you love God? So do you know God? Do you honor God? Do you love God? And now I'm at chapter 5, verse 42 and 43, which is right here in the text that we read. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me.
How does he know they don't love God? How does he know they don't have the love of God in them? Answer, I came in his name. I am his representative. I am the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he said to Philip. And you don't receive me. So, you don't love God. These are outrageous statements in a pluralistic world. And they're true. So the test is Jesus. And you can test yourself. You can know that you know God, honor God, and love God by whether you know Jesus, honor Jesus, and love Jesus as the incarnate Son of God who died for sinners, rose again, and reigns over the world as the Redeemer through whom alone we can come to God. If you know him and honor him and love him, you know and honor and love God. He is the test, the litmus test of anybody's claim to know and love God. So let me state these three again, give you the verses again in case you didn't write them down. 8.19, John 8.19, where Jesus is not known, the Father is not known. Chapter 5, verse 23, where the Son is not honored, the Father is not honored. Chapter 5, verse 42, where Jesus is not received, the Father is not loved. So it works both ways. What I mean by that is this. Worship leader this morning said the absolutely true and beautiful statement, if you know Jesus, you know God. And in the first two-thirds of this message, I laid all the emphasis on the counterpoint, the other side of the coin, if you know the God of the Old Testament, you'll know Jesus when he comes. Don't ever, ever play the God of the first two-thirds of your Bible off against the Jesus of the last third of your Bible. Don't ever do that. So many people feel that way. But that just shows how little you know Jesus. If you find the God of this part of your Bible alien to the Jesus you love, you don't know Jesus, or you don't know this God, because they are one. They're one in character. They're one in power. They're one in glory. They're one in beauty. You cannot love one and not love the other. So if you feel attention, then you need to Ask the Lord, show me what needs correction here. I need to know you better there, or I need to know you better here, because something's not working in my heart when I read the book. So when you relate to your Jewish friends, and when you relate to the, the Muslims that you may befriend or work with, what will love say? What will love do? I... Uh, my alma mater, Wheaton College, 
was in a big dust-up a few months ago, some of you may have read, over whether Muslims worship the same God as Christians. And in closing, let me just tweak that question and let this passage answer. Instead of, if somebody sticks a microphone in front of your face and says, what do you think about that question? Instead of being tangled up with same God, try this. So now your question was, do we worship the same God? Yeah, that's my question. I said, well, my understanding of worship is that it would include knowing God and honoring God and loving God. You agree with that, Mr. Reporter? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're worshiping God, you know him, and at least you claim to know him, and, and you honor him, and you love him. So, well, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said that if you don't honor Jesus as who he really is, as the incarnate son of God, died for sinners, rises again, reigns over the world. If you don't honor him, then you don't honor God. And he said that if you don't know Jesus this way, then you don't know God. And he said that if you don't receive Jesus for who he really is, then you don't love God. So as far as I know, none of my Muslim friends uh, knows Jesus like that, receives Jesus like that, honors Jesus like that, loves Jesus like that. And so no, they don't worship God, period. Same God or any God. Truly, they don't worship the true God. Now, you can judge whether I worship the true God. But the issue is, Jesus says, if you stiff-arm Jesus, you stiff-arm God. Jewish, Muslim, Christian. A Christian who stiff-arms the Jesus of the New Testament and thousands of Christians reject the Jesus of the New Testament and reinvent him in their own image. They don't know God. Now, that's a hard statement in a pluralistic world where you're thrown together at work and you get fired for saying that. And so we, we end on a note of call to courage and I'm arguing love. Because if you compromise the uniqueness of Jesus in order to maintain a good relationship, you don't love people. You love your skin. So don't, don't do that. Really love people. Really love Muslim people. We don't kill to spread our kingdom. We die to spread our kingdom. And we're willing to die. We just look people right in the face and say, you, you love me, and I don't believe in your Jesus. I worship my God. I said, yes, I do love you, and I hope I would be willing to die for you. But I'm not going to tell you a lie because that wouldn't be loving. And the truth is, there is one way to the Father, and that is Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, you reject God. So let's love people. Let's love the book beginning to end. Father, help us. Help the Christian church in America today to be strong, unshaken, 
bold, uncompromising, in a very pluralistic, relativistic culture in which the diversities of the world, including religious, are right on our doorstep. Oh, that we might be willing to, with tears in our eyes and love in our hearts and a readiness to sacrifice in our souls, give our stills to speak hard truth wherever it is called for. I ask this in Jesus' great and powerful name.